History is replete with examples of people who start out with great motives, but as they gain influence, the temptation to just take for themselves is so strong that they can't help themselves. Welcome to A Better Word with Dr. Nick Gatsky, Senior Pastor of Old North Church in Canfield, Ohio. I'm your host, Brian Dolan. Today, we're moving along in our series called Perfect Power in Our Weakness. It's from the book of 2 Corinthians, now in chapter 12. Our message today, Pastor, is called Authentic Ministry. Is there an implication here that there could be inauthentic ministry? Yeah, absolutely, Brian. There is such a thing as inauthentic ministry. And Paul was trying to display to the Corinthian Christians that his ministry was indeed authentic, not inauthentic in the contrast. And part of the way that he does that is through displaying his motives to them. What does he want for them as people who are listening to the gospel that he's preaching? And there's a lot to be said for us in that today as we try to evaluate what's authentic and what isn't. So then at the core of inauthentic ministry would be bad motives? I think so, yeah. I think that there is very often a self-serving motive of the one who is doing that ministry. And you see ministries like this pop up all over the world in all kinds of different contexts, seeking to draw people to themselves for the sake of personal gain. And that's one element of inauthentic ministry. Well, let's listen now to how Paul describes authentic ministry. Here's Pastor Nick. Friends, I want to ask you to grab a Bible and open with me to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And as you turn... Perhaps you've heard the story of the local bar patrons who were so sure that their bartender was the strongest man around town that they offered a standing bet of $1,000. The bartender would squeeze a lemon until all of the juice ran into a glass, and then he would hand the lemon over to a contender. And anyone who could squeeze just one more drop of juice out of that lemon would win the $1,000. Many people had tried. No one had succeeded. Weightlifters, longshoremen, firefighters. No one was stronger than the bartender. One day, a short, thin, balding little man came through the doors of the bar wearing black, thick-rimmed glasses and a double-knit polyester suit. He looked like a throwback from 1976. And he announced to the bartender in a faint, tiny, squeaky little voice, I'd like to take the bet. The whole bar erupted in laughter. And as the laughter had finally died down, the bartender said, okay. And he grabbed a lemon and he squeezed away. Drip after drip after drip filled the glass. And when he was finished, he handed this dry, wrinkled remains of the lemon rind to this little man. The man clenched his fist around the lemon and the crowd began to laugh again. But their laughter was turned to silence as one drop fell into the glass and then another and then another, six drops in total. And as the crowd cheered, The bartender paid the man $1,000 in cash and he asked him, before you go, I have to know, what do you do for a living? You're obviously not a lumberjack. (laughs) 
You're obviously not a weightlifter. What is it that you do? And with an almost imperceptible wry smile that came across the little man's face, he replied in a quiet, satisfied voice, I'm an accountant for the IRS. An accountant is one who sometimes can seemingly make it happen. They're the one who works for a business or a corporation and they take record of all of the currency that is going in and out of the business. Good businesses hire an accountant to make sure that what they spent is spent properly and that which comes in comes in as it should be. Without an accountant, a business could misallocate its resources. The accountant is there. Somebody hires an accountant to make sure that they're allocated according to plan. And that is an important job. As you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul is doing a little accounting. He's addressing an accusation that he is coming to Corinth to leech off of them for his own gain. And he speaks to them in terms of currency that needs to be allocated properly, but it's not the currency of money. He's a different type of accountant. This is the currency of life. And he wants to make sure that he is allocating this currency properly in his own life. And he wants to make sure that all of those who claim Jesus as their savior are doing the same because failure to do so would mean that their ministry wasn't authentic. But faithfulness in allocating these resources would verify the authenticity of this ministry. And so listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, starting at verse 11. He says to them, I have been a fool and you forced me to do it for I ought to have been commended by you, but I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with the utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. For in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches? Except that I myself did not burden you. Forgive me this wrong. Here, for a third time, I'm ready to come to you. I will not be as a burden to you, for I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? Have you been thinking all along that we were, have been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish and that you may find me not as you wish. And perhaps there may be quarreling or jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you 
and I may have to mourn over many of those who had sinned earlier and have not repented of impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they had practiced. Paul is writing to show the Corinthians that the nature of authentic gospel ministry is being done in their midst. And he's doing so up against the backdrop of those who are promoting a false gospel and sowing discord throughout the congregation. He's worried that when he returns that They won't find him as they should, and he won't find them as they should, i.e., we don't get along. (laughs) And in verses 11 through 13, Paul solidifies his defense of his apostleship by reminding them that the actions that he had done among them pointed to the fact that he was doing godly, powerful things that these quote-unquote super apostles could not do, He was doing them despite the fact that he was still a weak man. And so he reminds them that he performed signs and wonders and mighty works. And as one scholar says, the signs authenticated the message, wonders evoked awe in the hearers, and the mighty works manifested divine power. Paul, as other apostles had done, performed miracles among these people. And in the first century, God used those miracles to authenticate this message. But he didn't do so in a way that was overwhelming to them. He was patient with them, he says, in the midst of their opposition to him. And he there goes on to describe his motive for ministering among them. He says that he is preparing to come back to them for a third time. And that even in and of itself is astonishing to think about. Because as we've talked about in previous weeks, this ministry of the gospel among this church has had very mixed results to this point. There have been people who professed faith in Jesus and followed him. There have been people who professed faith in Jesus, but were not following a true gospel. And there were people in this church that were lying about and sowing seeds of discord With regard to Paul, they were attacking his motives. They were accusing him of not charging for speaking publicly among them because he was probably skimming money out of the collection for the poor. They accused him of acting like Judas, who when nobody was looking, took money out of the disciples' money bags. And it's amazing that he would go back to them yet a third time, because most people I know would say in a situation like this, fine, if you don't want what I'm giving you, but you would rather just attack me and malign my character, then I'll leave you to whatever happens to you and I will go on down the road to the next group of people who will receive this incredible life-saving message that I'm giving you. That's how most people would act. But Paul doesn't do that. He continues to go back to them again. And in doing so, he reveals his true motives. These are the motives for gospel ministry. They're not just the motives for an apostle, though they are. They're also the motive for any Christian that wants to serve God with his or her life. He communicates these motives in terms of spending and saving. 
in terms of currency, in terms of accounting. And he says in verse 14, I seek not what is yours, but you. I know that some of you have accused me of stealing money from you or trying to have the motive of theft, but I don't want something from you. I want you. Seeking people is the true motive for ministry. Friends, that's so important to recognize because there are a lot of ideas out there about what ministry actually is. But at its very core, ministry is about God and his works and his ways that are communicated in his word and is for his glory to people. (laughs) And there are a number of reasons why it's important to just meditate on that short little statement. The first one is that it helps us to examine our own motives when we think about serving other people around us because history is replete with examples of people who start out with great motives. They communicate the things of God. They have a genuine love for others. But as they gain influence over other people, the temptation to just take for themselves is so strong that they can't help themselves. And so what is initially good turns into something self-serving. And that is a temptation for everyone who influences others in these most important things. And so that's why we're told to examine ourselves lest we fall prey into that very same temptation of wanting to take from others. Secondly, the reason why it's helpful to understand true ministry motives is because sometimes you will hear something that a gospel worker says, something that is from the scripture and something you don't like. (laughs) And if you trust their motives, then you have to examine whether or not you will remain teachable to the scriptures and conform to them. And if you don't trust their motives, you almost will always dismiss in hand and say, well, that person is just out to get something from me. But friends, you need to know, you need to understand. And I recognize even in our church, there are things that I say up here from this platform that you don't like to hear that are from the word of God. That's what God does and how he works and continues to grind down the rough edges of our life. Hebrews chapter four, verse 12 talks about this. It says, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intention of the heart. What does that mean? It means that when you come up against God's word, there are times where it will pierce you (laughs) in a way that might not feel so good at the beginning. And yet, at those moments, when God confronts us, we have a choice to make. Do we remain teachable and conform ourselves to the scriptures or are we not teachable and expect the scriptures or the messenger to conform to us. And so Paul says to have clear motives in the middle of this is so important because it helps us remain teachable. I don't want to take something from you, 
he says in the midst of hard words, I want something for you. And I don't want just something for you. I want you. I want you to know God and to love him and to experience all of the fullness that you can experience by following him with your life. That's what I want. (laughs) And that leads to the third reason why this is so important to consider. It's an accounting of that of greatest value. Paul points to the fact that when you understand the hierarchy of true worth and value, then it would be absurd to think that he is just going after their money because money's not that valuable when he could actually have them. (laughs) Things are utterly subordinate. But life, your will, your mind, your heart are infinitely superior. I know a lot of people say they believe that, that stuff is subordinate. But friends, there are a lot less that actually live like it. And if you want to serve Jesus, then your goal needs to shift in this life from the accumulation of things. It needs to shift toward focusing on people. Paul communicates this motive for ministry in a variety of ways throughout the New Testament. I think 2 Corinthians 12 is probably my favorite expression of it. Uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 is probably a close second. He says in chapter 2, verse 8, to a different church about the same ideas in ministry. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. And then he just says in a couple verses later in verse 19, what is our hope and our joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? Jesus is coming back soon. We want to be able to present to him the thing that is going to make him the greatest glory. That's going to make him infinitely happy. That is going to display that we were faithful to him in this life. What is the thing that is going to display his incredible worth? Is it not you, you are our glory and our joy. Serving God means that you give yourself first to the Lord. And in doing so, you give yourself to other people seeking their very souls for God. And that is the reason why Paul did that, the very reason why you can do that is because you understand that things are utterly subordinate in the hierarchy of worth and value. People are infinitely more valuable. And so Paul displays that he has a motive and this motive is not just all talk, that this motive actually has action to it. And we see that true ministry action is expressed in verse 15. Look at it with me. He says, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. I love that expression. 
Paul is talking about the currency in which Christians deal. This currency that we deal in is not physical money. Our currency is time, effort, devotion, and it leads to, as he says, the procurement of souls to God. (laughs) The good news of the gospel is that Jesus paid for them, for those souls, for your soul on the cross. That if you feel distant from God, you feel like there's no way back to God, you feel as Jason felt, as expressed this morning, that what shall I do to be saved? That Jesus paid, he procured on the cross a ransom for your soul. That's the good news of the gospel. A ransom is very simply the exchange of something, of currency for a life. And in this case, the payment was his life for yours. And now those who serve him utilize this most profound currency of life to participate in the transactions of souls to God. I can think of nothing more loving, nothing more generous than a person who chooses to spend and to be spent for souls of other people. That's what Christians have been doing for 2,000 years. They look at the world around them. They look at the mechanisms of currency. They account for their life and they choose to spend, but not for stuff that they're going to keep, not for their own comfort. They're spending for souls. That's what I'm trying to do with my life. Albeit quite imperfectly, I've been in pastoral ministry for 15 years in a couple of different roles. That is 5,475 days. 780 Sundays spent for souls. If the Lord allows me to serve full time until I'm 70, I hope he allows me longer than that. But if it's till 70, that means I have a lot more to spend and to be spent. Another 9,855 days. (laughs) That sounds tiring. Another 1,404 Sundays with God's people. But here's the thing. You don't need to be in full-time ministry to spend and to be spent for the souls of other people. Without a doubt, God is calling some of you to be in full-time ministry, to change your career, to reallocate your life, to focus on this great call of expenditure for souls at some period. But God is calling all of you to spend and to be spent for other people. And so what does that look like? What does it look like to spend and be spent? Most of you have a variety of responsibilities. You have a full-time job, you have a family, you have activities, you have hobbies. You have a variety of things that you want to do in this life. And the temptation might be to say, I can only spend and be spent for God if I just give it all to him right now in a glorious self-sacrificial transaction to pay the ultimate price of turning away from every reality of this world and going out into the bush and to a people who don't know him 
to go down in a blaze of glory of martyrdom in his name. I'll do that, God. If that's what you are calling me to do, I will do it to go out in this blaze of glory. It'd be easy to go out in a flash of glory. It's harder, I think, to live little by little over the long haul and gladly spend and be spent. Spend it all for your soul and the souls around you. Thanks, Pastor. That concludes part one of a message titled Authentic Ministry. We'll get to part two next time. Did you miss some of our previous messages in this sermon series called Perfect Power and Our Weakness from the book of 2 Corinthians? Go check out our podcast wherever you get your podcasts to download previous messages. As we begin to wrap up, we're going to pull Pastor Nick back into the studio. Man, do we have a resource this month with gifts to a better word. This one's a Christian classic by Corey Ten Boom called The Hiding Place. Now, why'd you select it for this month? Brian, I love books that are about the heroes of the faith. And heroes of the faith come from many different periods of history and a lot of different contexts. And this one is a great one because we know that many of our heroes of the faith are men. We can read many books about the reformers and other men who are heroes of the faith. But Corey Ten Boom, being a woman, provides a different perspective on a hero of the faith. And it's so helpful for us to learn from her and really be inspired by her in this story. It's compelling, and it will definitely be an encouragement to you. And if you're not familiar with her story, it's an incredible story from the era of World War II of a woman who stood for her faith in Christ to protect human life, risked her life for others, and endured in the midst of a horrible situation in a concentration camp with deep and abiding love for Jesus. So check it out today with your gift this month to A Better Word. Go to abetterword.org and get your gift in today. Again, that's abetterword.org. A Better Word is a teaching ministry of and is sponsored by Old North Church of Canfield, Ohio.